0: So I'm sitting in ninth grade English class, like slouched low in my chair, pretending I don't care about things because caring about things isn't cool. And my teacher, his name was Mr. Power, which is a name better suited for like a football coach than an English teacher. And he tells us that, that we're going to be reading this book, this, this play. It's, uh, you may have heard of it. It's called Romeo and Juliet. It's really old. It's about four hundred and twenty-three years old, roughly. Um, so, if you haven't read it yet, you've had you've had time. I'm going to spoil the ending for you. They die. Um, and in this in this story, it's this. You know, we know of it being this this, this romance between Romeo and Juliet, and there is this uh, at its very foundation this this strife between these two families, the Montagues. Uh, not to be confused with Montague Park in Chattanooga, um, but the Montagues and the Capulets, and there's this blood feud, this vendetta between these two families, and as a result, Romeo and Juliet, their 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 love is forbidden and. It's a lot of drama because it's about teenagers. And they run off and they get married and they realize they can't be together. So one pretends to die, but she's not really dead. And Romeo in grief kills himself. And then when she sees that he's dead, she kills herself. And it's kind of a miserable story. Um, The thing is, we think that Romeo and Juliet is about romance. Romance about love, but really at its core, it's about failed conflict resolution. Failed conflict resolution doesn't really sell theater tickets, so people bill it about love. Um, But in Scripture, there's a really great story about, there's lots of stories about conflict. In fact, I mean, from the very beginning, from from the garden, it's about a broken relationship. It's about this broken relationship between... um, between God and, and his creation, the people that he has made in his image, people whom he loves and this, this broken relationship. And it, it manifests in all kinds of different ways through with, with lying and with violence. And when we get to, to chapter 6, verse 11 of Genesis, it talks about the whole earth is filled with violence. And that leads God to having to destroy the world with the exception of Noah and his family. But even after that, this trend continues. We we see the Israelites. We see you know the sons of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael. You know there is this strife there. We see the the sons of 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 uh, of of Jacob, of sons of Israel. You know there's there's strife there to much the point that they 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 sell one of their brothers into slavery, pretend that he's dead, just to get rid of him. Uh, we we see all these stories of strife, but, but turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel 24. I'm going to read the whole thing because this is a really good story. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Then Saul took three 1,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rock. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, and there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him... Here is the day of which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And after David's heart struck him, because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe, and he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed to put my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words, and and he did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up, left the cave, and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord King! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of the men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father... See the corner of your robe in my hand for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you you may know that I that, and see that there is no wrong between there is no wrong or treason in my hands i've not sinned against you though you hunt my life to take it may the lord judge between me and you may the lord avenge me against you but my hand shall not be against you As soon as David finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept and said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me. And that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. And that your kingdom of Israel shall shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. I think there's, there's a lot in this story for Christians when we're when we're looking to understand conflict resolution, so if you have uh, the the announcement sheet, there's there's some questions on there for this morning, and there's a little space between this uh, space for you to write some scriptures down or any thoughts that you might have, and go back and use these scriptures for your own personal study. Study this for yourself. What then is the goal? For Christians in conflict resolution. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1. Ultimately, the the goal for Christians is to emulate Christ in all things. So, Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard and which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven in which I, Paul, became a minister. So Paul's writing to the Colossians, encouraging them to to hold fast to their faith. But but within this encouragement is is the, the ministry of Christ, this ministry of reconciliation where God is reconciling humanity to himself. We have this conflict between us and God, and so God sends his Son to mend that relationship, to prepare to, to this breach. And so, uh, as, as Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says, um, we, I think we, we all know this verse, but let's go ahead and turn to it there. We've been studying Galatians in the high school class. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul goes on to say, I don't nullify the grace of God, for uh, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. See, it's Christ who lives in us. It's this, this process of, as Romans 12, 1 says, it's this living sacrifice. So as, as we put to death our own desires and the, own, the things that we want in our flesh and seek to understand things as Christ understood things and seek the will of God as Christ sought the will of God and to be transformed by the Spirit, Christ is made alive in us and is manifest to others through us. And so Christ's ministry of reconciliation falls to us. Go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Starting in verse 17. Therefore, if if anyone is in Christ... making God's appeal through us. God's appealing, or God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, as we 're reading through this we 're probably kind of thinking well this this is kind of referring to to the reconciliation between God and man, but if we are to take the example of of how God is at work in this world and what Christ did for us, uh, the goal of Christian reconciliation is first to to put to death the desires of the flesh because when we see wrongdoing especially wrongdoing against us or wrongdoing against those we love, the, the first instinct that we have is vengeance, is to, to lash out against those who have done wrong and, and to appease our flesh so that we feel good about what we have done, to be vindicated in ourselves. And I believe that sort of, uh, that sort of response of, of violence for violence is what filled the earth with violence in Genesis 6. And that's, that sort of uh, imbalanced way of handling conflict is what leads God to kind of put a limit on it and say, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Hand for hand, foot for foot. Because while that is quantitatively equal, it's not necessarily qualitatively equal. So, if we are looking to the example of God through Christ how we're supposed to handle conflict resolution. We are supposed to handle conflict resolution by making peace in all things. Making peace among ourselves and our neighbors, between one another in the church, and and to repair these relationships. Just as God repaired the relationship between him and us through Christ. Not because God did anything wrong, but because we did. And so God... Sends his son to suffer the punishment for our actions. Matthew chapter 5, 9. We know. We know this to be the case. What God wants for us. For he says, blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. The son of God was a peacemaker. We are called to be peacemakers. So what then do we do when we are at fault? What is our response to our own fault in the world? Continuing in Matthew chapter 5, look over at verse... uh, Let's look at verse 23. If you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going uh, going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I said to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Here, Jesus kind of gives this, this command that... that When we are in the wrong, we settle the account quickly. We don't avoid it. We don't avoid the issue. We don't ignore the issue. We don't seek for it to just kind of go away on its own or wait for somebody else to handle it. The onus is on us as children of God that when we are in the wrong, we seek to make right. Over in Acts chapter 3, when Peter is giving the first gospel sermon, he convicts the hearts of those hearing. Acts three, verse nineteen. Or sorry, this is after. Uh, after this, um, actually, uh, stay over in Acts chapter two. Um, Acts chapter two. When the hearts of the believers are convicted of their sin, Peter tells them, repent. The very first part of of when we realize that we are in the wrong, the first step is always to repent, to turn from what we have done and to seek to do better. I, I refer you back to the example of David. When David had cut off the corner of Saul's robe, he felt guilt for what he did though he did, Saul, no bodily harm, he showed him disrespect by by you know, by cutting off the end of his cloak, the end of his robe, And so in this disrespect, David feels remorse, even though Saul is in the wrong for trying to kill David. David says as much that, you know, I am, I am innocent against you. you. You don't need to pursue me. But just because Saul is in the wrong, even though the thing that in our eyes, is small to us, cutting off the edge of the rope, that doesn't seem like very big of a deal. It's still wrong. He still shouldn't have done it. And he recognizes that fact. And that's why he withholds from doing anything farther. David repents of his actions. David very well could have just stayed in that cave, waited for Saul and his men to leave, and have nothing happen. But David steps out of the cave, calls attention to Saul, puts himself at risk and recognizes the situation. So what do we do when other people are at fault? What do we do with the fault that is in others? Because I think a lot of times this is, this is where we struggle. When we, when we see fault in ourselves, we know that we should do better. We know we should, we should respond with repentance. We should, we should rectify the issue. We should reconcile with our brother, our neighbor, whomever. And we have control over that. But we don't have control over others' repentance. We don't have control over the actions of other people. And that tension between what we know is right, what we know is just, and what is possible. Sometimes there's a disconnect. So what do we do when others are at fault? Back over to Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 verse 13 actually let's back up to verse 12 Paul's talking about the new self once we have put on Christ once we've been baptized into Christ and put him on we're no longer ourselves we're something new and he's talking about this new life and he says put on then as God's chosen ones humble holy and beloved compassion Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so that you must forgive. And above all things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Our response, when we have a complaint against somebody, when we have a grievance, great or small, Whether we feel that we have been disrespected or harmed, our duty is to forgive. We have to be the first to forgive. Ephesians chapter 4. Just back up two books. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Here again, Paul is writing. I'm going to back up again. Let's go to verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Continuing into chapter 5, Therefore be imitators of God. As beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. See here, when Paul is writing about forgiveness, the forgiveness that we have for one another is absolutely inseparable from the forgiveness that we have been given. We cannot be forgiven without first forgiving if you don't believe me, go over to Matthew. Back to the Sermon on the Mount. Christ is, is praying. It's Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. He says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It is absolutely vital. If we are to be forgiven, we must be people who forgive. We have to imitate Christ if we're going to receive the blessings of Christ. Hebrews, hold your finger in Matthew because we're going to be back over Matthew chapter 8 in just a moment. Go over to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8. Sorry, Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I love the book of Hebrews. I don't know who wrote it. I don't think it was Paul. Uh, Paul, his job wasn't for the for the Hebrews. His job was for the for the Gentiles. But regardless of whoever this is, they're writing in a time that's very difficult. This is a very difficult period in early Christianity because what we see happening to the early church, we have this this period of time where Christians are being slandered. They're being persecuted. They're being ran out of town. And this is in an age before I mean, not just before like easy transportation of goods, but easy before, easy before easy liquidation of assets. It was not easy to sell what you have and move to another place. If you were ran out of town, you lost everything. You lose your, your physical goods, you lose your social network, and in a time where you lose your social network, you have nothing. You have no means of restoring what you have. And so we have this this population that's being scattered. And the Hebrews writer is telling his audience that in the midst of all this persecution, in the midst of this scattering, lives being shattered. He says, strive for peace. Strive for peace with all men. See, these are not the people who are causing the problems. These are not the people who are going out and and, and being the ones who are upsetting the apple cart. These are the ones who are being, their apple cart is being upset. And they're the ones that have to strive for peace. If we're to be sons of God, we must be peacemakers, even when we're not the aggressors. Oftentimes it's the peacemaker that gets their nose broken the person who, who steps in and intercedes on behalf of others, not just on our own, on behalf of our own selves. And by doing so, the Hebrews writer says that the holiness, this, this quality of being set apart for something greater, being set apart for the purposes of God, peacemaking being that purpose, because of that holiness, because of this peacemaking, Others will see God. I think this is one of, the, one of the qualities that led the early church to grow and spread so rapidly in the face of such great persecution is their ability to make peace as they strive to do good, as they strive to, to live by the example, not just of Christ, but also of men like David. Not seeking to do, to do evil, but, but to reconcile and to, and to rebuild and to mend this bridge. When you do that, even when you are in the right, when you have the right to seek vengeance and choose not to, that touches people. That grabs them in a way that few things will. Matthew chapter 8, verses 23, longer section here. written down the wrong thing Sorry, Matthew chapter 18 Occasionally when I'm making notes, I'll have to go back in and squeeze a scripture in so I write it real quickly and so it's it all kinds of runs together. So sorry, Matthew chapter 18 verse 23 Peter's just asked Jesus about how many times do I, do I forgive someone who has wronged me? You know, even so much as seven times. And Jesus, of course, responds, 70 times, seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him and owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, the master ordered him to be sold, and his wife and children and all that he had, and payments to be made. If you are in the ancient world, and this is your situation, the family is not sold as a unit. You are sold individually. Your family is essentially scrap goods in the junkyard. You won't see your wife or children again. So the servant fell on his knees, as is verse 26, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave the debt. So we know who that is. We know who the master is. We know who the debtor is. We know that's God. We know that's us. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii. Many, multiple times less. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. So that the fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you the debt because, of you, because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also... My Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. Again, if we do not forgive, we cannot be forgiven. Because of the debt that we owe to Christ, because of the response of of His death and sacrifice, and we have to live, we have to be transformed by the image of Christ, living within that, motivating us, pushing us out into the world, the people who forgive. Even at loss, because we know what we have gained is so much greater than anything that we could lose by forgiving others. There is nothing in this life that's worth holding over your brother or sister. But what do we do when reconciliation isn't possible? I was talking to a friend of mine earlier this week or this past week and there is a little bit of a land dispute between him and his neighbors he had put out a concrete post so that he could serve a part of his land so that he could construct a shed on his property and make sure that it was square and level his neighbor interpreted this as moving the, the property line uh, the issue is if he did move the property line he gave his neighbor more land and took away some of his own uh, but Never mind. The neighbor sees this as being a slight, And the neighbor goes over to him and begins just pouring out his wrath on him. How angry is he with him that he just he would not let go of the fact that you moved the boundary line. It's like, well, I, I didn't. That's not the boundary line. The boundary line is somewhere else. But this is just a piece of concrete that I used. Wouldn't believe him. The neighbor will not believe him. The neighbor will not reconcile with him. So, what do we do in situations like this when reconciliation isn't possible? We're staying in Matthew chapter 18. We're going to back up a few verses because Jesus already handled this in this section. And I would have done it in that direction, but it, it, it threw off my outline. So, we're going to back up. Matthew 18, looking at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. That's okay. We don't we don't have to just suffer silently and be like, you know, oh, he did me wrong. He said this or did this or whatever and we keep it to ourselves and bottle it up and hold this wrath inside of us no if your brother sinned against you they may not realize it go to him and speak the truth in love don't pour out your wrath on them speak the truth in love go tell him his fault between you and him alone if he listens to you you've gained a brother but if he does not listen take one or two others with you along with you also that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Jesus here appealing to the old law and the, and the commandment for having two or three witnesses in situations like this. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. You know, here Jesus, he, he, he's writing before his own crucifixion. He's writing before he's speaking before the the establishment of kind of what we tend to think of as the church. Here, the, the word is is kind of the gathering. This is just the 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 faith community. So, in, anyway, some people kind of make a big deal about that. I'm just saying that like don't make too much out of don't make too much out of a small thing. Anyway, tell it, you tell it to the group, you tell it to the gathering, you tell it to this community of faith, and He says, you know, he shall be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Now, of course, Gentiles have been brought in. You know, Jesus loved tax collectors, but he's speaking the language of the people. You know, if this someone, if they won't be reconciled, if they are in the wrong, clearly, and it's been established by two or three witnesses, it's an undeniable fact, they will not reconcile, you remove yourself from the issue. You see, Jesus doesn't say, turn the person over to the judge. You know, persecute this person. He says, no, just back away. Leave him alone. You know, you you separate you separate yourself from this situation. We can go back to the example of David and Saul that we read about earlier. When David accounts to Saul, Saul's wrongdoing, Saul recognizes the fact that he's wrong. He says as much. He says, you're a better man than me. You know, just just don't kill my family when you take the throne. David agrees. Saul leaves. David goes back to his stronghold. If we look at the next verse here, you don't have to turn to it now. Um, Let's see. Maybe not the next verse. Well, I didn't have it marked in my notes. But we know that Saul and David weren't good after this. Saul and David remained at odds, not through any doing of David's, but Saul couldn't let the fact go that David, uh, that David was going to take the throne from his family. Saul would not reconcile to David in spite of David's best efforts. In fact, later again in the book of Samuel, the same sort of situation plays out where, where David has the opportunity to kill Saul. He doesn't take the opportunity. Saul apologizes. David leaves. Saul leaves. Saul gets mad again anyway. There are situations where people just will not reconcile. And in those cases, you just remove yourself from that situation. It's the best you can hope for. Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12. Paul is writing about the idea of the, this living sacrifice, this transformation that takes place within us. and it's not like a snap transformation, but it is this, this process of transformation through, uh, through discerning, testing the, the will of God and trying to figure out what it is and how we express it in our lives using the gifts that we have. And in verse 12, or uh, chapter 12,' starting looking at verse 14, and then we're going to skip down to 17 here. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. When someone is doing you wrong, you forgive, you bless, you do not curse. Verse 17, he says, repay no one evil for evil. Because remember what the the proverb that David quoted, he says, uh, wickedness comes from the wicked. You know, if we are doing evil, We are evil. If we are doing good, we are good. Christ is alive in us. So we don't do evil. We don't repay evil for evil. But we give thought to do what is honorable inside of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with one another, with all. Beloved, and we are beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap coals, burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I love this section. Because it's a reminder that the the desire to, to get vengeance, the desire to repay... It does not belong to us. When wrong happens to us, when wrong happens to those whom we love, the power of repayment does not belong to us. Even though we are the object that receives what is wrong, we do not become then the judge to do evil or to take up vengeance. God is judge. God is the one who repays vengeance. And God does so perfectly. Perfectly. You know, when we read about the wrath of God in Scripture, it's scary. It is, it is a frightening thing. But we know that the vengeance of God is perfect. And, and this should convict us to not take up evil, not just for our own selves, but not to embitter others against us. He says, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, you give him a drink. This is not limited to mealtimes. This isn't limited to just the physical necessity of food and water. Paul is teaching the principle that if your enemy needs something, you, it is your duty as a son of God, as one of God's children, one of his chosen heirs, to give them what they need. And this idea of the, the, the burning coals being heaped from their head, there's, there's two interpretations of what this means. On, on one thought, it's, it's like you are, you are taking coals off your head and putting them onto the heads of another so that the wrath is not poured out on you, but the wrath is being poured out on them. And that seems like, you know, man, like you do, you do nice things to someone so bad things will happen to them. That seems a little, seems a little strange, a little foreign. And the other, the other approach to it is that you, you do good things to others so that these, these coals are like their conscience burning in them that motivates them towards repentance. Here's the thing. I think they're both right. We do this with the goal, with the hope that when we do good to others, their conscience will burn. They will repent. They will change. And we will gain a brother and we will save someone from the wrath of God. And that's a blessing. But if they don't, if they continue to abuse the heirs of God, there is a wrath coming for them. There is God's vengeance that will come. And we can have confidence in that. And so we continue to do good To show them the way of Christ. Church, I love you and I am so thankful for the opportunity to get up here and preach. And and looking forward to uh, tonight's sermon with Brian. And Brian's got next week covered as well. But after that, uh, starting in August, we'll have Brother Joel up here. I'm excited to see that. Church, we need to be reconciled to one another. We need to be reconciled to God. We need to be reconciled to our neighbors. John writes, he tells us, to, to love one another. For love is of God. If, if you haven't been reconciled to God, God, if you haven't been baptized, if you haven't put Christ on in baptism and are living this life, this uh, this living sacrifice, this this new life, this new creation, this transformation taking place in you, you need to do it. You have the opportunity now, but the invitation is always, always open. If you are not living according to the way that God has called you to live and you need help, that's what the church is for. We're here to love you. We're here to encourage you. We're here to build you up and help you along and to do the things that you need to do. We don't get to heaven alone. Paul says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. The you there is plural. Y'all work out y'all salvation. We have to work the salvation out together as a family because we love one another. So here's your invitation. If you need the prayers of the saints, if you need to put on Christ in baptism, Now's the time. Thank you.